Listening Dog Media. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins and this is How To DJ. I got it in Selector Disc. I just didn't know who it was and I just thought, well, it's either going to be amazing or it's going to be terrible with a name and a cover like that. And I got it home and it blew the lid off everything. How To DJ. A podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds and experiences of much-loved DJs where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. There is that exchange of energy that really is untangible that happens, you know, in these venues and in clubs, and it's it's magic. It's absolutely magic. With me now is a DJ, radio presenter, and the bass player with Primal Scream. She's DJ at Glastonbury and hosts her own show on Soho Radio. You realise, actually, at the end of the day, it, it is all about playing music. <laughs> it's kind of the love for what you're doing in that moment is really, you know, what you're in for the long haul. You know when the energy is right, the vibe is right, and, and every track you play, it's just everyone's going off, and you suddenly instinctively know what you're going to play next. You're like, I know what's coming, I know what's coming. Yeah. The thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps, that. She also has a, a half-decent joke about a little boy starting <laughs> bass lessons at school. Simone Butler, hello. That's the worst joke I've ever told anyone. I can't believe you pulled that up. <laughs> Uh, I think it goes something like a boy was uh, having lessons at school and the first day he goes back to his dad and his dad says, oh, so what did you learn today? He's like, well, you know, there are four strings and the first two strings are E and A. He's like, oh, great, cool, okay. And then next week he goes back, comes home, and the dad says, uh, so, you know, what did you learn today at your bass test? He goes, well, the other two strings are D and G. They're like, oh, cool, excellent. Well, I bet you're looking forward to next week. He's like, yeah, yeah. And then um, comes back the third week. It says, so how was the lesson today? And he goes, oh, I didn't go. Like, what do you mean didn't go? He goes, uh, I had a gig. <laughs> <laughs> it's really the worst joke. <laughs> so there you go. For you, Simone, I guess that bass playing came before DJ. Actually, no. Um, I got into DJing first years and years and years ago. Um, huh? and, um, I set myself up with, you know, like just two Technics, 1210s and a mixer and loads of vinyl. Um, obviously didn't really have kind of, I think CDJs maybe were a thing, but I was never really into them at that point. And, um, I just started collecting vinyl. You know, there was lots of vinyl in the house when I was a kid and I just loved you know that idea of like I don't know just being able to kind of like set up in my my room and play loads of music and make sort of mixtapes and stuff like that I mean I think everyone does that a bit as a kid you know like you sort of tape things off radio and make mixtapes and stuff so it's kind of an adult version of that I used to do uh, pretend radio shows what that doesn't surprise me <laughs> the stereo at home had a plug-in mic and uh, i'd make like you said i'd make mixtapes and then uh, after each song pretend to interview my sisters they hated it oh, i love it <laughs> they absolutely hated it oh bless. do you remember like your first ever kind of like dj show like presenting it like how nervous you were well that what i was just talking about was when i was about 10 and yeah. uh I, I progressed from uh taping off the radio to uh, buy my own 45s and singles so i play those in and then do the interviews and the, and the pretend radio links in between but 
the first show I ever did, I guess, was on hospital radio. It was uh, an orthopedic hospital, and the hospital radio station was brilliantly called Fractured Sound. <laughs> That's really good, actually. <laughs> and then uh, I, I started working at uh, BBC Radio Shropshire, my local radio station. And, oh. uh, and the rest... Well, the rest of history. <laughs> sort of. Uh, so for you, uh, what were you listening to? What was that music that you were playing? What were you putting on the mixtapes? Oh, when I was a kid, oh, God, it was like a lot of Cure, I don't know, Depeche Mode, uh, some Madonna, things like that, New Order. Yeah, I suppose that kind of thing. I just I remember discovering New Order, that, that track, New Order True Faith, and it sort of blew my mind open and Policy of Truth by Depeche Mode, you know, that era. I call it like the chart show era because I it, you know, I used to go down on Saturday morning every weekend and tape the videos off of the chart show and try to make, you know, like a, a music video mixtape, stuff like that. So yeah, I guess it was that kind of gothy or maybe more industrial kind of sort of sounding stuff and maybe new wave, that kind of thing. Lots of Cure, lots of Prince and Madonna. Were you a goth? I wasn't a goth, no. My brother was a goth. <laughs> he was really heavily into the Cure. But um, no, not really. I never really was in a scene. I kind of never really wanted to be in a scene. I just had too many interests in different kinds of music, you know. Um, like I, I loved like the old soul and Motown stuff, but then I loved, you know, like I say, Depeche Mode and New Order and everything like that. So, no, I was kind of friends with everyone from all of the scenes and I didn't really have a scene. Was it sort of bedroom listening or, or were your friends all active, if you like, music fans? Um, I'm going back to like sort of being a teenager. So in that at that point in time, yeah, it was like lots of kind of bedroom listening and stuff like that. And didn't really get to start going out to gigs till much later. Yeah, I think I was a bit of a kind of late bloomer in terms of going out to gigs. I was a bit more of like taking lots of music home and listening to it all on my own and then playing with it and seeing what works with what and working it out and then, you know, getting myself set up with like decks and stuff and kind of really getting into music. And I remember finding the Suicides album, not knowing what it sounded like, I just bought it because... I found the cover in, I think I got it in Selector Disc in Soho. I just didn't know who it was. And I just thought, well, it's either going to be amazing or it's going to be terrible with a name and a cover like that. And I got it home and it was Dream Baby Dream. And it blew the lid off everything, really. Uh, everything's very credible that you've mentioned. It is very credible, isn't it? I mean, there's been some kind of pretty embarrassing stuff along the way. I think, you know, I do have a copy of Fuzzbox. Pink Sunshine. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. Because my dad used to work for Warner Brothers when I was growing up. So he would bring back loads of vinyl. So I had lots of music sort of coming in and he was also a musician. So I was exposed to instruments and live music and and rehearsals and, and musicians as well. So I kind of was lucky enough to have it from um both sides really. I, I grew up in quite a musically sort of passionate household. It was, it was always around. What did your dad do at Warner Brothers? Well, he actually did. Do you remember when like places like Tower Records in Piccadilly, when it was right in the middle of Piccadilly, would have massive window displays for albums? Yeah, they, they were famous. Yeah, yeah, he did all those. He did all the window artwork for Warner Brothers. So we always had lots of like promotional stuff and... 
I remember the, when the Love Sexy album from Prince came out, we had these big meter squared um, like installations of Prince in our garage for weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, and, and the Batman soundtrack and um, all, all kinds of stuff. And sometimes I would go to him on jobs. I remember doing the Donington Monsters of Rock window with him at Tower Records when I was a kid. Sort of like took the day off school and we, we did the window and Tower Records together. So that was kind of fun, but he's also not just that. He's because he was a musician before, like his musical knowledge. We would sit and jam, you know. I had a little sort of Casio organ, and we would like play around. And there was always guitars in the house, and always vinyl. And and he would be playing me stuff and telling me stories. And you know, Eddie Cochran and uh, Roy Orbison. He would um, he would talk about, and it was just really nice to be around that sort of music passion, I suppose, and it not be you know, something that's a sort of foreign entity. Yeah. So I feel lucky in that sense, definitely. Would I know his band? Oh, uh, he was in a band called The Honeycombs. I think I've heard of The Honeycombs. Yeah, they had a song called Have I the Right and they worked with Joe Meek. I mean, that, that was way before my time and he actually sort of joined them after that single came out. But it was all still there. He was still in bands after that. And then when my brother was born, he was still doing that. And then when I came along, he, he had to kind of settle down and get a different job yeah a, a sensible job yeah <laughs> well we say that but it's just like is anything sensible these days so did he teach you guitar he did actually yeah I kind of thought like at the same time as DJ and I'd like to learn guitar because then I realized I did want to be in a band I mean I always wanted to be in a band or a backing dancer on top of the pops <laughs> basically <laughs> or uh you know I kind of I think I wanted to be like one of the dancers that went on tour with Madonna, you know, I, I just wanted to do something like that. I always thought like the idea of going on tour was just incredible. But um, yeah, I, I thought, oh, you know, I'll play guitar, get my dad to teach me because he was a guitarist. But it kind of didn't resonate with me, not to, no pun intended, but like it didn't resonate with me in the same way when I picked up a bass because I had this idea that I kind of wanted to be different. And I just thought, oh, you know, I feel like I could maybe express myself better on. A different instrument and and picked up bass guitar and um yeah I guess well like you and the radio show like the rest is history really do you, do you remember that very first time Simone picking up a bass yeah I do because obviously I suppose like sort of 20 years ago girls playing bass it was it was sort of at a similar time when there were lots of female DJs coming up and it was it was going from not being a novelty to be a, a female DJ to being cool. And I suppose there was this idea that being a female bass player is somehow like more of an image or something like that. So I went into a shop down Denmark Street and it was the bass seller. And uh, I was really intimidated because it was a whole shop of bass guitars, which I thought was just plain weird. <laughs> I didn't think there was like more than like 50 bass players in the world sort of thing. And um, yeah, I just remember plugging it in and this sort of sense of the whole thing vibrating and it was just vibrating all through my body. And I just thought, this is incredible. It's like tone and sound and rhythm and and vibration all in one and I just didn't get that from the guitar and I didn't understand low-end frequencies I didn't understand any of it but I just felt oh my god this is like this really visceral physical thing and uh yeah I kind of fell in love with it really I had no idea that it, it would take me on to do what I did but I just wanted to carry on 
how quickly did you get good? I don't know. There's not a point where you sort of get... I don't really see it like that. I kind of just see it as like constant Im- improvement, not to sound like all altruistic about stuff, but I think on bass, it's probably the instrument where you can kind of get the basics down and then you you can carry a song through like pretty quickly. You know, whereas with a guitar, it's like it's very obvious. You, you know, you can't really hide your mistakes very well on a guitar. It's going to sound awful very quickly, you know, or like playing a violin, something like that. But I don't know. I think within like a few months, I, I found my first band. I'm not saying we were good, though. Do you know what I mean? I think it, you're sort of as good as, as everyone else, really. Um, I still haven't answered your question. I don't know. Uh, I'm still getting good. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first band? The first band was called... This is embarrassing, man. Um, it was called Foolish Young Consumers. <laughs> because we thought because we thought it was funny like to do something that sounded like looked like fine young cannibals but it wasn't and um it was with a friend of mine George who was utterly ex- obsessed with Frank Zappa but he was kind of a genius he was sort of like a a really really lovely guy like a, a sort of functioning alcoholic but a genius as, as well and um he was always drunk when we did rehearsals and he just wrote these amazing, amazing lyrics. Um, and a drummer from Istanbul, if I remember rightly. And it was just a three-piece. And we just wrote these kind of like really sort of silly songs, really. When was this? Uh, I'm trying to think. I think it was like sort of early 2000s. Yeah. Something like that. When was your first paid gig? First paid gig, I think it was at the Buffalo Bar. It was with a band called Dempsey, um, yeah. which was down. It, it was the one just outside Highbury Islington yeah. Station, which isn't by the tube, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, that was one of my sort of really, really early gigs, and that was paid fifty quid or something, you know. And uh, what about your first paid DJ gig? Oh God, uh, I remember my first site. I had a weekly residency at this place called the Gold Bar off of Carnaby Street and I played for like six or seven hours the whole evening and they, they didn't pay me but they just gave me free beer all night for six or seven hours yeah <laughs> <laughs> but do, to be honest I wasn't at the stage where I should have been getting paid to do it I think there's a time and a place I kind of always believe in knowing your worth in, in a way and there's a time when you can do things for free because the what you're getting out of it is like amazing experience and confidence you've got nothing to lose but you ha- you do have to play in front of people and playing at home and getting things right is one thing but then playing either on stage or in a public environment and getting it right is another level of concentration and focus. Yeah, what were you playing then at the Gold Bar? I was really into Tech House, uh, end recordings, uh, like Wiggle Nights, things like that, Nathan Coles, Terry Francis, um, like Mr. C stuff, um, Leo and Bushwhacker. Uh, but then I also liked ambient stuff like uh, Boards of Canada, things like that so it was kind of a mixture of that sort of deep tech house like so I couldn't really play kind of real techno in there because it was a pretty chilled out bar so it was kind of a mixture of that I just loved that deep house kind of vibe really that was sort of where it was coming from at that point and um it's weird you know when you, I suppose when you 
start DJing and you're just learning to beat match from vinyl, it's uh, I can't. It's really hard to think going back to that because now we're in an age where we're using visuals more. I suppose you know with CDJs and stuff like that, and you can use things like auto cue or auto mix and all that stuff, which you don't use because it just sounds a bit artificial. But yeah, I remember the first time I played there, I, I took like four massive record bags full of vinyl. I mean, I don't know how I did it. I needed my neighbour to come and like help me onto the onto the bus. I got a bus there. <laughs> yeah, it was fun though. It was really fun. Okay, Simone, time now then for the the first of your five picks from uh, forty five in this record box. So all the questions are on forty five sleeves. I'm going to dip in. Amazing. And you just say when. Okay. When. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Your first of five from 45. Uh, what is the responsibility of a DJ? Oh, wow. Um, I think really is to provide an escape. You're there for everyone else that night. And my thing is, I think I've learned I've got, doing shows, doing gigs, whatever, um, is to play to the crowd and not to play for yourself. Like there's a time and a place where, where you play for your own personal pleasure. You're there to take the crowd on the journey and to like give them the best time possible. You know, when they come out, whether it's just at a local pub or whether it's in a massive club or even a festival and they've paid a lot of money to come see you or whatever the expectation is, you're there to really give them the best time they can have. I think and um to like make them as as happy as possible and take them higher you know get them into an ecstatic state because that is how incredible music is that is like the, the true power of music is to really like elevate and um I guess just to convey that you know do you think on a, a good night do you think that you get into that same zone? Yeah, I really believe that. I, I think that energy, and also whether it, you can have that, whether you're playing in a band and that exchange of energy, or or it's a bit more condensed because it's just you as a DJ. And I'm not a massive name DJ, you know. I, I just, um, I know this from having done it, you know, quite a few times, but obviously it's not my main career, you know. And a bigger DJ who plays to massive crowds all of the time could really go into it but there is that exchange of energy that really is untangible that happens you know in these venues and in clubs and it's it's magic it's absolutely magic you know when you can feel the shit you can feel the shift if you're losing people and then you can feel it when when they're coming back as well it's just mm. you're just tuned into it i think as one person it's different as a band because the energy is a bit more scattered on stage and, and you're sort of a bit more focused on that but as a dj you're really tuned into that and I think if you really know your records you know you might have planned a set or whatever but you really you know what records is gonna make the crowd go crazy if you put it on next yeah I love uh having a plan and and then not going with it exactly yeah because you might find the most perfect set that works as a perfectly you know well rehearsed recorded thing but then when you get there you don't know what the mood or the vibe is going to be or what people are going to respond to or you might think this is going to be the one that everyone's going to go what at and they don't or you start to lose them and you've got to kind of change the vibe so that's what's very different about sort of DJ and, and playing a show but um I kind of think you owe it 
to the crowd to sort of be responsive to them because it's about them and it's not about you. Is it much harder to do that in a band? Well, you have a set, you know, you can't sort of go, oh, let's let's try. There, it's more a case of like they've come to see you do your thing rather than you sort of playing to the crowds in a way. Like they've come to kind of see you do the songs that they love and your job is to, to play the best you can. Like your, your job is to put on the best show you can for them. How did it feel, that step change from what you were doing before to getting the gig in Primal Scream? Um, do you mean from playing in smaller bands to playing with Scream or like doing more DJ stuff? Yeah, I guess going from, yes, uh, having a fan base in whatever band you were in before, but Mm. then stepping out with a band where thousands of people know the songs uh, and you are feeding off a massive audience who adore you. Yeah, they they adore the band as as a whole. So I I kind of like, it's part of that collective thing, you know. Um, So what it is, is an incredible thing to be part of and to share on stage and amazing things are happening on stage as well like I'll look around at Andrew and you know he would have done something and, and laugh at it or or we both see something in the crowd and we both laugh at it you know or or, or me and Daz will sort of look around and like yeah this is this is good and things like that and it is incredible for a musician to go through that stage of playing really small gigs but those being very intense and intimate as well because you're up against the first time you've done something or you're up against maybe the edge of your ability in those really early stages and it's a different sort of um, thing that you go through and then when you experience that as something that's already established that's already familiar to you because I knew obviously knew the music and loved the music before and then you're in it and you're part of it it's kind of an incredible transition and then you realize actually at the end of the day it it is all about playing music (laughs) You know, whether or not it's 30,000 people or, or, or 30 people or whether or not you've grown up with a band or you haven't, it's kind of the love for what you're doing in that moment is really, you know, what you're in for the long haul. And, um, yeah, and you're, you're with amazing people on stage um, and you're sort of all experiencing it once. It is, it is incredible. I remember the first gig I did with The Scream, the first thing we did was like um, Made Avail, BBC Six Music, actually. There's a radio session. And I didn't then, know that. Yeah, because it, it's funny because I, I worked in Vintage and Rare in Denmark Street for ages on and off. Loads of musicians I know worked down those shops because um, it's easy work to pick up when you're not on tour. Yeah, my my, uh, my brother-in-law uh, sold uh, you, you. Would this be possible if I got this story right, that he sold you a, a guitar at one point? He sold me a guitar. Is that possible? Um... Maybe. That shop, was it buy and sell? Yeah, we did buy stuff off of customers if they wanted to sell it. So he came in and we bought it off of him. Yeah, he was. Oh. He, he's in uh, the Sleeping Souls, Frank Turner's band. Oh, okay. He takes great pride in telling that story that he once sold you uh, one of his guitars anyway. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to have a chat with him again. Yeah, so... Um, was I saying? Yeah. Um, Playing um, that session with uh, with Primal Scream. So um, did that. And then the first actual gig is we flew to Hong Kong and played the, don't laugh, but it's called Clock and Flap. Um, Clock and Flap Festival in Hong Kong, just by the harbour uh, for 30,000 people. And then that, that was the first ever kind of thing I'd done. And that was quite surreal. And all I could think of was how frizzy my hair was going because it was so humid. <laughs> how did you get the gig, Simone? I basically um, 
got a call from Bobby one day um, saying, you've managed to get my number because we have a lot of mutual friends. And I had met him before. But he, he just rang me up and said, do you fancy coming down? We Well, first of all, he said, are you still playing bass? And do you fancy coming down? And, you know, we need someone to go to Australia with us. Uh, we've had Debbie Googe and she's kind of going back to what she was doing before now. So I kind of thought, oh, okay, yeah, you know, this is one of those moments. <laughs> this is, you know, because I've had lots of moments in my life where you just sort of accept what's going on. You know, it's all a bit surreal, but you sort of go with it because, like, beautiful things happen in those moments, truly. Um, and I think in music you just have to be, like, ready to kind of, what do you say, like, turn on the dime, you know, just say yes in a moment and, and back it up. So, yeah, he just asked me to go down and audition, and, and I did that. He asked me to learn three tracks, and I just thought, well, I'm not going to learn three. I'll learn, like, the whole live set. I'll, I'll learn 30 tracks. So I, I went down there with, with all the, the music under my belt. And, um, yeah, it was a really, really good session. We played, like, for a few hours and, and, and hung out a bit, and then um, that was it. it. kind of offered it to me that day. He's a, a notoriously tough taskmaster, but you obviously did enough to impress him on day one. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you've had a band for 30 years, you have to make sure that you put the right person in place because, you know, if I'd had a band that long, I would not want to waste time with anybody who wasn't going to do the job. Not in a brutal way, but it's your music, you know, and they're going to be playing that live and it's got to be right. And you've got to gel with the right person on the personality you got to get along with them they've got to have the right feeling were you as uh stylized then as you are now were you as focused on how you looked on stage no definitely not I think that's it's a really good question actually I think the more you play and then the more images you see of yourself and the more confidence you have it's about confidence I never had this idea that I should look a certain way as important as it is I kind of don't care as well but I think also it's got something to do with being getting slightly older and, and feeling more confident in yourself. And, you know, it regardless of what you do, your image kind of changes as as you as you clock up the years. You know, like say the kind of things you wore when you were twenty, you probably won't wear now. You know, the way you wear your hair or the way you do your makeup is probably gonna change. And as a woman, it's really exciting to kind of experiment a bit with your image and, and move into different aspects of your personality. And I mean, if you take someone like Madonna, she's like this incredible chameleon who um, experiments with her image at every opportunity, you know, and that's there in history to see. And I think one of the, the great things about music and performance is that, especially as a woman, um, I feel, well, there's Bowie, you know, game over, but it, it, like, especially as, as a female on stage, um, I like to feel comfortable, but I also like to feel the event of a show, you know, feel the experience of a show. I'm not just going to go on in jeans and a jacket. That might be cool for some shows, but I like the idea of um, kind of emerging as a part of yourself on stage that you're not really in real life, you know. And I think there's that, is that sense that is grown with me and I've, I've got more confident like your exterior kind of is an expression of that yeah and it's just kind of seeing what fits and I mean the heels have definitely got higher over the years <laughs> <laughs> you do it brilliantly you, you really do and I'm a big believer in uh, the sense of occasion a gig is a show yeah how to DJ with Chris Hawkins still to come to any young aspiring musician or artist it's kind of it is all there for the taking you've just 
got to believe in yourself enough to to get yourself out there and, and doing it, and then doing it will give you confidence. Right, uh, Simo, back to the box. Say when. Okay. Your when? second of five questions is, which song holds the best memories for you? Ooh, like just a song from my personal life experience yeah or like well do both mm, I think it's funny isn't it like how a song can be like this box and, and when you hear it it suddenly opens up all these like memories it's really it becomes like almost a tangible thing sometimes um well one of them and I, I, I talk about it a lot but it is true faith by new order because and it's not a song that I can listen to like every day um, or it's not a song that I can listen to in sort of ordinary surroundings. You know, it kind of sort of feels a bit odd because I just remember the first time I heard it and it was like when I was in my bedroom making these like cassette tapes, you know, on those the tape recorders, the double deck tape recorders that like clink, uh, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Yeah, True Faith Bunny All, I just remember the first time I heard it and I just thought, oh my God, I think I've just heard the best song ever written. You know, that that kind of feeling. So there's that. It it just reminds me of discovering how music can really transport you to another sort of space and time. It's a bit of a sort of internal thing that happened on my own, not something amazing that happened at a festival amongst loads of people. Okay, so that. And another one. Oh, let me think. What about one that's uh, now performing one? A performing one. I mean, there's something about when we perform, like, Shoot, Speed, Kill, Light on stage. Um, I re- oh, I know. It was when we played um, Glasgow, the stadium up there, uh, with uh, Stone Roses a couple of years back. It was, like, one of their last gigs, and we supported Stone Roses. And it was this incredible day. I- I'd come out of a really awful, awful, awful sort of time in my life. And and it was like one of the first gigs where I felt free from all of that stuff, all the mental baggage, all of the, the stuff that went on. And there were two rainbow, it was a double rainbow in the sky. And I just thought, oh God, this is amazing. And I just remember feeling so good and so free and so happy to be sort of doing what I do and instantly you play better instantly you have a better gig instantly you feel brilliant about being on stage instantly the nerves go you feel like you're in the right place that kind of thing and I remember just hitting um I think we started with moving on up and I don't play in the intro and then I come in you know and then we start and I just remember thinking god this sounds so good (laughs) like I just remember like feeling the bass going through me I can feel it now, like I feel sort of a bit shaky thinking about it. I just felt really overwhelmed with like this sense of happiness. And, you know, it was Primal Scream and the Stone Roses playing together. It's a pretty good combination. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it had been raining that day and the sun's come out and hence the rainbows and everyone was just like so happy. The crowd were incredible. And um, moving on up, it was just like one of those tracks that when you play it, as soon as it kicks in, it sort of goes off, and it's such a yeah. positive, happy song. I was at uh, Heaton Park for those shows that you're talking about, oh. and I remember seeing you guys and thinking, I would not want to be in the Stone Roses, <laughs> because it was like a headline set. <laughs> oh, bless you. It's funny, a headline thing, because some people are there to see the support, some people are there to see the headline, and I always 
a lot of those times it doesn't matter who goes on first or second or, or, or whatever and you've got to play every show like a headline show no matter what it is what you do or however many people you're playing with it's like you you just play the headline show like wh- wherever you are on stage it doesn't matter you know just play the best you can have the best time I mean I remember I DJed Glastonbury a few years ago and uh, I did the um did the acid house thing with with in Jags Kuna's tent and that completely went off and, and then afterwards I went to play um tiny little box you know in Shangri-La it's just like you, you turn a corner and there's like a cubicle with four people in and it's like a rave you know what I mean it's just like there's stuff going on everywhere and I played the monster club or something like that and it was this tiny 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 little room of about I don't know 40 or 50 people and it was one of the best gigs I've ever played it was it just you know when the energy is right and the vibe is right and, and every track you played so everyone's going off and you suddenly instinctively know what you're going to play next. You're like, I know what's coming. I know what's playing next. Yeah. I know what's playing next. I'm going to uh, make this hard, but uh, as we're on the subject, um, from perhaps that set, is there one song that stands out that you played that holds great memories? Oh, man. Um, can't remember exactly what I played that night. I was a little bit, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a little bit merry on that set. Um, but, you know, one of my favourite tracks to kind of play, and it's sort of old school, I suppose, but Daft Punk together. Yeah, like when it drops, ah! It's just when the bass comes in because you can hear it together, together. Like it, you can hear it, you can blend it into another track, and, it, and people can hear it coming. I love those kind of things where you can tease little things, and then the bass just kicks in. Oh, it's so good! Just uh, hearing you sing that, how good are you? How good am I? What singing? Yeah, I can sing a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I've never really heard you sing. Um. I keep it quiet. I'm. I to be honest, Chris. I have no confidence in my voice. Okay, so I, I'm. I'm fine with bass play. I'm fine with the instrument or being in front of decks or something else that isn't me. I think anyone who gets up on stage and sings in front of people, I'm just in awe. I remember when I was a kid and I auditioned for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at school. It was the first time. It was in primary school, and it was the first time I'd ever sang in front of anyone ever. Ever, 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 ever. And, but I really wanted to do it. And I was sitting there and they were like, who else wants to audition? And they were, all the kids were putting their hands up and they were all really good singers. And I put my hand up and I was like physically shaking. I'm like, okay, come on, stand up, here it is. And I had the song sort of sheet in my hand and I literally had it almost right over my face. <laughs> and I was singing like, close every door to me, hide all the world from me, bar all the windows and shut out the light, that one. And, I just remember like shaking and feeling sick, but singing through it. But I just remember thinking, okay, if I can do that, I, like I did it, you know, if I can do that, maybe I can sort of do other stuff. But there is part of me, which is still that kind of little girl going, oh no, oh no. But I mean, like doing backing vocals with the scream and things like that has helped me. Um, yeah. And I did... Um, I'm doing some stuff now. Like I'm, I'm doing some of my own music now, um, and some of that involves vocals. I'm not even going to say singing <laughs> <laughs> because there are so many amazing like female vocalists that I love. Like you know, you know Jane Weaver. Like I love her. Yeah, massive fan. It's interesting, uh, Simone, when you you're talking about possibly doing something where you're front and center. Mm. 
the way you talked about getting into DJing for the first time, the way that mm. your confidence grew as a, a guitarist and bass player. Mm. So I'm wondering, you know, you, um, you're on another journey, I guess. Yeah, there are lots of different things. I've always wanted to do lots and lots of different things, but my main love has always been music and always playing live, always, you know. And I've been incredibly lucky to to do the bands I have. But the smaller, low-key gigs, I still loved doing them. And then when Scream came along, you know, it gave me a chance to really fully realise and, and go in, into things and, and meet people and work with other people that I love, you know, like Farris from Horrors or Ed Hardcore or Zach Starkey, James Williamson from the Stooges. You know, it's like you meet people that you can, you not only admire, but you can work with and play with and and learn something from. And you realise that it, it is, you know, to any young aspiring musician or artist, it's kind of, it is all there for the taking. You've just got to believe in yourself enough to to get yourself out there and, and doing it and then doing it will give you confidence you know yeah. getting up on stage gives you confidence to do it and and clocking the gigs up on the, under your belt gives you confidence and um just kind of doing things when you feel when it feels uncomfortable to do it because you can't wait until you feel ready you've, you've just got to get out there and and make it happen you know and there's definitely a lot more exciting things happening i can't really talk about everything i'm doing actually at the moment it's sort of mm. a bit of a secret mm. oh exciting there's some really other cool things happening i'm definitely working on my own stuff and, and working on something with somebody else as well oh, okay. um dying to get back to screen gigs you know yeah of course but um you're staying with primal screen though. oh of course yeah yeah so yeah i just can't wait for there to be some kind of dependability on, on how we can go forward, you know, in live music. Yeah. And, and I love collaborating. I, I did a single and some other tracks with a band called White Hills last year that came out. And I've got, I made my first music video this year with a friend of mine, director friend of mine. And um, I'm really getting into the visual aesthetic of things, um, doing lots more artwork and, really want to make more electronic stuff as well like the stuff that I really am inspired by and do remixes and do more DJing it's a decent shopping list uh, <laughs> right uh back to the box okay you say when when okay uh what's the most famous you've ever felt <laughs> oh god um you're so good at this interviewing thing, aren't you? You just ask really good questions. They're just questions from a box. <laughs> you made the box. Um, don't know. It's it's weird. Fame. Isn't it? It's weird. I don't consider myself famous. You know, I just you're the bass player in Primal Screen <laughs> for Christ's sake. Band famous, aren't they? You know. Um, I suppose it's nice like when people recognise you, you know, in the street, or, or they ask you for an autograph or photo oh, that's really nice because you you know what that's like not really when yeah you do <laughs> <Not really. laughs> no but what what i mean is like you know how much it means to you to meet yeah. someone you love like if i get to meet like wayne kramer you know and hang out with him yeah maybe when wayne kramer followed me on twitter i felt famous <laughs> there's no serious answer to that if you take yourself that seriously then i don't know all right. Okay. Well, well fudged. Um, <laughs> yeah. And what about the most famous you felt as a DJ? Ooh, there's been a few moments actually. Um, 
I opened up for Jesus and Mary Chain once, and that was really, really cool. That was like a, it was just a bit of a dream, you know. Um, I think one of the best times was at that Jags's Jags Cooner's Acid Lounge uh, tent at Glastonbury. That was just like one of those incredible. I started off the set with David Bowie, "Let's Dance," and everyone. <laughs> Because I just thought it's a good way to just kind of go, hi, I'm here. <laughs> I was covering for Lily Allen, I think, because she had to pull out. So I just kind of went in and sort of put a set together, but then thought, ah, it's Glastonbury at 3am. I, I need to be like a little bit fluid on this. Do you know what I mean? It's not going to be, you know, people standing against the wall, nodding their heads. Everyone's going to lose their shit. So I started off with Bowie, Let's Dance. And it was just like carnage from there on. And it was just one of those nights where everything flowed and went amazing and, you know, like just jumping around and, and going nuts. And um, it wasn't that I felt famous, that I just felt an, an intense sense of connection uh, with everyone. Like everyone was on, on the same page. And I think that's, to me, like DJing is more about that than feeling this sort of separation of I'm famous and I'm just playing to people. It was just a such a brilliant night like everyone was kind of um in the same energy i really have fond memories of, of that that set so yeah that one another dip mm. uh when okay um has a dj ever saved your life <laughs> <laughs> um has a dj ever saved my life um yeah loads of times you don't mean literally do you um we all have those nights that are kind of, I suppose, like turning points where you go out and you just think life is just too much. Everything's terrible or whatever's going on. Um, yeah. And you just have those nights that make you believe in humanity again, I think. I had a, a night once where a DJ booth saved my life. What happened? It was in a pub in uh, Islington and uh, there was a massive fight. <gasps> and... Uh, <laughs> I uh, went and, <laughs> like the big man that I am, I went and hid in, <laughs> got into the D-Day booth <laughs> and hid down <laughs> down below the deck. So uh, oh I was God. able then the next day to say, last night the DJ booth saved my life. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> uh, I mean, I remember at Glastonbury quite a few years ago, I mean, a fairly spiritual experience to Cole Cox in the Glade. <laughs> was, it was sort of like... Uh, There's your book title. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was kind of like re-establishing my faith in, in life. That was pretty good. You know those nights where you just feel like the DJ's reading your mind? You know? Yeah. I used to have those nights at the end. Did you go to the oh, end? Oh, the end. Incredible. Yeah. I mean, oh, I wish it was still there. It was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah. Vibrating dance floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was an amazing club, man. That was an amazing club. Wasn't it? All right. Uh, just one more question from the box for you, Simone. As you know, you've got to say when. When? Your fifth question, Simone Marie, occasionally Simone Marie <laughs> Butler. When do you use it? <laughs> Marie's my middle name. And my mum gave me Marie because she was a massive Elvis fan. And obviously, Elvis had a daughter called Lisa Marie. So I think um, <laughs> something there. And Butler, I just, you know, it reminds me of on the buses. Just, uh, no, don't. Ugh. I just think Simone Marie kind of like flows off the tongue a bit easier. 
You do get called Simone Marie like it's that's your whole name, though, don't you, sometimes? Yeah, and I, I quite like that. It's weird, oh. isn't it, your second name being your family name? I just kind of like, whereas Simone Marie is just me, it's not sort of attached to anything. It works. Simone Marie just sounds a bit better. Right, here's your last question. Uh, which song or piece of music do you love playing most? And oh. and what about your best sequence of three? Oh, do you mean playing as in a record or playing like live as a band? Well, you can do both as you wear two yeah. hats. But uh, first, let's do the, the song that you absolutely love playing. Wow. You've mentioned Daft Punk. Yeah, together. I, I just love it so much. Um, Anything else? I really love... Um, Gwen Guthrie, Peanut Butter, the Larry Levan rework of it. It's amazing. It's just her voice. Um, if you hear that over a massive system, like, I'm in love with you, it's just uh, shivers, absolute shivers. You know, you get those moments in the car, but not even in the car, just listening to something like the thing about music where it can just give you goosebumps. That, yeah, you know, Larry Levan, wow, what a guy. That that's one of my favourite things to play. What about in a, a sequence? What what would you follow that with? I think maybe the Daft Punk together, and then maybe um, Prince Kiss. <laughs> what I like um, sometimes about playing out there's such a distinction between like very modern stuff, how it's produced, and then putting on an old record. And when let's say maybe it's had a bit of a remix or a rework, and it, it you know the bass is a bit hotter or. or it's maybe it's been quantized a bit so because a lot of sort of older stuff isn't actually in, in time so maybe it's like I had one of those treatments and it can be played in a club but I, I kind of love it when you can put one of those older records on and it really works with with new stuff because that the feeling of nostalgia that you get is like it's ecstatic you know it's like putting stuff like controversy or kiss on in the club and just seeing it like go off because these records just stand the test of time Especially Prince yeah. stuff. Not everything Prince did, but a, a lot of what Prince did. Um, yeah, maybe those three. Nice tip. All right, Simone, thanks so much for coming on. I have got one last question for you. Ooh, yeah, okay. There's some kind of non-specific catastrophic event where there's some bizarre caveat where you have to play the last record on a global dance floor. Bloody hell. Uh, what, what, <laughs> what would that be? Oh, <laughs> so that's hard. Um, I actually think, and I've mentioned it already, I think it would be True Faith, New Order. Yeah. I, I think. Yeah, that yeah, would work. I, I think it would be. Um, it's the first one that, that comes to my mind. I think it's a good choice, and you've kind of brought us full circle in the conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Simone, thank you so much. I think I want to be you. <laughs> Don't be silly. Well, you'd have to you'd have to inherit my shoe collection and my PVC trouser collection. I'm good with that. <laughs> Simone, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've been ace. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Simone Marie Butler. And <laughs> that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. <laughs>